Welcome to South Island Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. My co-host is Steve Walsh. Hello. Our guest this week is HKB Finn, uh, formerly known as Hunt Kilberry Finn, from the crew Catch-22. Catch-22, spelled with a K, were a South London hip-hop group in the early 90s. Part of the Brickcore scene. Yeah, we've also got an interview with DJ AJ from Hard Noise coming up very soon. Which will be on southlandhardcore.com and on iTunes, of course. We're at SLHD on Twitter. We're going to play a couple of Catch 22 tracks. The first one is Diary of a Black Man Living in the Land of the Lost from the album of the same title. And at the end of the show, Dance of the Shadow Boxer from Dark Tales from Two Cities. Go to hkbfin.com. You can buy all of his solo records. Follow him on Twitter at hkbfin. Diary of a Black Man Living in the Land of the Lost. I have to reach in your mouth and grab your tongue and twist the lie from your tongue and slap you with the truth from this microphone. The totally spineless patron Who lacks the gumption without the system They cannot function Education is the key for some But if you're not educated doesn't mean you're dumb Because life is the ultimate school So if you're going to be the other man Nah, who's the fool when I'm cool? I cast my vocal pitch Conscious itch by thoughts and rich But bitching, many seem to do Holding back yourself and your entire crew So rewind your mind and broaden your horizon Intelligence will come for realizing the ignorance He's gotta be slammed like a page in the diary of a black man. In a veneration today, but only a glimmer in a city is where I dwell. The land of the lost is a living hell, so I tell things are not as they seem. Cause you're a fine supreme, I'm not a part of the team, know what I mean. You better know your past and cast society out because it made me an outcast. So I blast and cast the first stone of those who try to tell me, Watch she go home. So free your mind to find your intelligence. But if you don't, you'll talk, you're irrelevant. And it's before from your lips as I empty the lyrical clip from the hip unto strip. This is my plan, just a page from a diary of a black man. The word nigger means a person of a black face. So I will always call that person of a black face a nigger. Your life is a price and the ultimate force Even my force, I force 
former national front 10 years later. Still acting the country I'm born in. I don't belong in. But I'm black and I'm packed and I'm strong in. Knowledge and prowess, not hereditary. But with facts and stats if necessary. That you understand, no demands will be made. I live in the West, descendant of the slave trade. Played and betrayed constantly by my own kind. The bubble head values that loose my bloodline. I'm little data made to live in a mold. My parents advise to do as I'm told. But they're old. So what do they know about the 1990s? When the minds are still stuck in the 70s. All my enemies, how many I'm playing for? Being black is a fact that I'm proud of But my history is totally shrouded in mystery Misinformation Infidels have no inclination of who I am or my true potential For violence and things consequential Essential facts about my past have been denied by cover-ups About total lies are trying to climb into my mind to find what I'm thinking When I'm supposed to be the missing link in this human chain I refrain to get angry or robber Talk about my forefathers who's lost with and tears for the great in Britain But their children ain't getting shit from this system Of computer apartheid behind the terminals of with the race the hot To confide the real equal opportunity for that you feel the way I'm warm, so I'll chill and hunt and kill your ignorance, suckers. About this country's decadence and disregard for your feelings. Cause as a black man, I've got you really. Cause this track attracts so much, it's amazing. The facts you lack, so that's why you came to loss and you don't give a damn. It's just a page from the diary of a black man. HKB Finn. Yeah. But you were Hunk Hillberry Finn. Right, yes, right. And there. you don't tend to. Uh, I spoke to someone who knows us both. Yes. And when I said, uh, oh, you know Hunk Hillberry Finn, they were like, uh, I didn't know that's what it stood for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is um, there, was there a definite change of personality there? Yeah, I was, I was getting older and I felt um, I was doing a lot more work in like different areas, like classical and jazz and stuff. And um, I remember doing. A show, I, was, I toured for a year with the Royal Philharmonic. I was like a guest vocalist doing like workshops and gigs because they trying to get the youth um, into like con- contemporary classical. And then um, I did a gig in Stevenage. And I remember looking at the, the, the leaflet and it was like, yeah, and Rake's Progress featuring Hunt Kilberry Finn. And I looked at the audience, a bunch of like, you know, purple-haired ladies. And I thought, yeah, There's a disconnect. It's, got, it's got to go, in it? It's got to go. And then, luckily, I had a bit of a mishap where I got um, robbed by some quite clever um, businessmen because I set up huntkilberry.com and then after about six months, my website went down. I called the office like, oh, what's happened to the website? Took nothing, just ooh, nothing, numbers dead. And then, um, but I had their business address. So I think I called the Internet Ombudsman of Britain or something and they gave me the business address and the company had moved next door. And but um, but what? But it's, it's an old business technique. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you get money from people, yeah. you move next door, and then all the letters are going. To all the, the letters dead, are going. It's nothing. It's legally, yeah, yeah. you can do. Any, you can't do anything. And they so, they, they declare bankruptcy, so it's exactly. an entirely new business. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. With your money, and um, so I had to basically sort of start my web um, presence again. So I just thought, yeah, it's rebrand. So but the thing is, it. I imagine. Uh, you don't want to do a complete rebrand, like a complete name change, because no. yeah. you've got recognition, and also uh, as far away as you are from that persona, it's sure. a brilliant name. Isn't it? It's Thank great. It's, so it's some yes. wonderful yeah. work there, just yeah. like, like bit by bit. Like, this but is, this is it great. is only the second best name in Catch Twenty Two. Obviously, DJ Killer Killerman twice. twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not once, but twice. <laughs> the same man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how did it all start, Catch Twenty Two? Catch Twenty Two started because of a guy called Superb C. Um, 
I was in a crew with Superb C called Black Phantom Rain Supreme. We were into Rubios and BPRS, and we were going to take hip hop by storm. Um, the setup to that, basic, the basic thing was I was in a reggae sound system for like God knows how long, and I got quite, quite bored of it. And I was still fairly young, and I thought, I don't want to do this old people music, I want to make like young music. And hip hop was like the young music of the time. Like, no, yeah. There was a new music, yeah. and like, everyone was like, it's not even music, it's just noise. <laughs> and I remember um, a friend gave me some 12s, and I took them home. Um, and it was like looking for the perfect beat. I remember spinning on my head in my living room on the lino. And we used to have like one of those preserved living rooms that you weren't allowed in because working class family. <laughs> and um, my dad ca- came in and I'm like spinning on my head. <laughs> <laughs> my dad just stood there like with this look of failure in his face like, my son is dead. <laughs> and he's ruined um, the lino. And, ruined <laughs> the lino. Yeah. and his feet are on the plastic on the sofa. So um, yeah. So anyway, fast forward back. I left the reggae thing and there was a guy who was the the best friend of one of the reggae guy's brothers and he was into hip hop and I was like, oh yeah, what's up with that New York music? I like that, play me some stuff and we went around to his house, we had a bit of a recording session. So I was doing my reggae toasting and he was doing his rapping and um, he annihilated me. Following day, no, two days later I went back with some new lyrics and then annihilated him and then he took that tape so we, so we did one side of a tape and then we did the other side. And he took that tape to um, some hip-hop jam and met a guy called Danny D, um, who worked for Cool Tempo Records. And then Danny D basically offered us a deal. And so we were like, yeah, yeah, we'll take the deal because young and green, don't know nothing. And he's like, no, you should get the ch- contract checked out. We're like, nah, don't worry about it. <laughs> Sign it now. Give me the money. <laughs> Give me what age are you at this I'm point? I'm like 21. Yeah. So 21. it was like a contract? Yeah. I'm of course like, I'll sign it. <laughs> Thirty? How much thousand? <laughs> Come, rude boy, we can do this. You know, I had like dreams of yeah, we were going to be big, top of the pops, everything. And then um, the the we was, Danny D wanted to do like a press thing, so he said, "Oh, can we wait a couple of days?" And he will get in touch with the press, and then they'll come. And then, you know, as we sign, they'll take a photo. It was quite a traditional thing back then, sort of late eighties. And then um, so we're like, "Yeah, cool." So that was like the Thursday. So we had like you know about eight days before we were back. So during those eight days, Superbsy got really ill um, and we never made the signing. And so like, Danny D was like, no, you should come down and sign a deal. And I'm like, no, we're together. I don't even know about this music thing. I know reggae and I don't know this New York thing. So if he's not coming, I'm not coming. So that was it. And then, his illness kind of got quite infamous at work because I was working on transport, I forgot that bit. And so another train driver, a guy called Stephen Andre, was like, oh yeah, he's into the hip hop thing. He produces for a group called Hijack, but he doesn't really get a lot of recognition because it's quite a big collective, Hijack, and he wants to like, do his own thing. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay. I don't know any rappers, but I know a DJ. So I introduced him to a guy called Brainiac, who I used to hang out with in East London, in Leytonstone. And I started rapping for them as like their temporary MC and we were called Three the Hard Way, and then eventually we there was a group called Three the Hard Way in America, who then became the Third Base. Oh yeah. Um, but they were originally called Three the Hard Way. So when we heard they were called Three the Hard Way, we then changed our names to Cats Twenty Two. Pretty obscure name to be double enough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. In terms of MCs around that time, particularly American MCs, what were your sort of influences? Who were you listening to? I was listening to Just Ice. I liked the Cold Getting Dumb album, and. Um, what else did I like? 
I liked um, JVC Force. I liked Public Enemy, and I definitely liked Keras One. Yeah. I thought it was really cool. Um, and then when you started to uh, perform in the UK, who were the other MCs around at that time in the UK that were an influence on you? There was like Mellow. Um, there's a group from West London called Eleven Fifty Nine who I like adored. Like no one else liked them. I loved them. I thought they were <laughs> awesome. Um, Power Lords, Cookie Crew, but Cookie Crew were like on a whole other level to us because right. we we saw ourselves as underground artists. But to us, they were like. The Kanye's of our day, they were like they'd made it. They they're on like, top of the pops, on top literally of the pops, on top like, of the pops. Yeah, yeah. They had recognition, everything, and you know, I think even one of their albums they went to America and it was like produced by Primo, I think, and stuff like that. So they were like, so yeah, they were around. There was a group called She Rockers. They were like, there were just a lot of crews. I don't remember like names, but I remember no, faces. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, there were a lot of really amazing. There was one group called Corporation. They were on um, Cold Sweat. Yeah, um, I thought they were pretty good as well. They were pretty hot. Um, so Cold Sweat put out um, all your records, yeah, all yeah, three, three albums, three isn't albums, it? Yeah. yeah. How did that come about? The deal with them and uh, that first album. Well, there was a crew that um, I knew from Battersea called Rude Boy Business, and um, they they were into the hip hop thing a long time. In fact, side note, um, I came. I grew up in Jamaica, and when I came here, I came when I was like seventeen. And I was hanging out with these guys who went to my school in Battersea. And they were like, oh, we're going to go to York Gardens Community Centre, which is on the Winstanley Estate in Battersea. And at this community centre was like, um, the guys with Boy Business and a guy who I knew as Michael Henry, but you may know as Mellow. So um, he was like the hip-hop guy. They were all hip-hop guys with the funky, with the gazelle glasses and the <laughs> expensive coats. And I was like, the reggae man. Um but so I remember them from then and then we kind of stayed in contact and then um, they wanted to produce a 12 and they liked Margot's sound. So they said, oh, would Margot produce a 12 and do I want to get on a couple of tracks or whatever? So I was like, yeah, cool. So then Margot hooked them up with some instrumentals and we made Cool Sailing and some other song. I can't remember what the other song was. Um, and then that was done at Cold Sweat. But at that time, because of my sort of reggae background and Andre's um, funk background we had like a very particular style of working so when we went to do the the the, the um, Rubo Business 12 we basically just turned up at the studio with like a, a basically what we'd call a call sheet and on the call sheet you just like 11 o'clock transfer songs to tape 11.25 rap 10 minutes <laughs> and like so we'd work and then like by one o'clock we're hit. mixing yeah yeah you know so like and I guess the people at Cosworth they like that so they were like oh have you got anything else and we like the way you work and yada 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 and then that was how it got together yeah so record companies like seeing people produce stuff when they're in studios and that yeah not yeah. having studio time no, for people no. To, yeah. even though like the Cosworth studio prices were like ridiculous but we didn't know that at the time but anyway it was cool so yeah, that's how we got. Whereabouts was uh, the cold? They had their own studio, cold. Yeah, they had a, it was at S one two seven A Askew Road, Shepherd's Bush. Um, and is that where you recorded all? all that's where we recorded all the albums. Yeah, we did like I'd like um, like the rough demos. We did them. We did them in Battersea. Was Stockwell the bass? Stockwell was the bass because Killerman Twice and Marga both lived in Stockwell, lived right. south, um, and then where Killerman Twice was, he lived off Lindor Road. And Lindor Road in, in South in Clapham um, was where like Westwood would go and like do stuff, you know, hang out with like proper gangster people. 
and there was a place 90 Lindor Road was like a crack house right. um, and then so like we don't I don't know why Westwood was there maybe because the people who was his, who were his security at the time maybe they were serving there I don't know but his car was always there and then so a lot of kind of like hip hop people would kind of be around right, either yeah, in the cafe yeah. or in the pub or but we had a better vantage point because our DJ lived there so we'd yeah. always be you know in that area um so it was easy to kind of slip west with a tape or yeah. give him a tour or something. You're around anyway, yeah. we've got to make a special trip and hope he's there. And hope he's you're, there, yeah. You're there and Look he's out there. the window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he, was, he always had like some big vehicle, I don't know, he had some Cherokee something or another or like, you know, whatever. So, yeah. But it was quite happening to like, and then from Stockwell, like literally five minutes up the road in Clapham North was where uh, DJ Supreme lived. And then I think um, Vince another guy from Hijack, he lived like five minutes down the road and like Kamanchi Sly lived further down in Stockwell, Stockwell. So like between Clapham North and Stockwell, there was quite a... Nexus. A nexus, yeah, yeah, crossroads of things. There's quite a lot of overlap with yourselves and um, with uh, Hijack, isn't there? I mean, there's a a sort of half of that that first album, half of it is roughly maybe is mixed by Hijack. Well, in the credits that I saw anyway. Yeah, no, it is. Um, What happened was... uh, uh, DJ Marga and DJ Supreme had like a, a sort of working symbiosis and they were able to so Marga did sort of pre-productions on some hijack stuff because he was a lot more nimble with the sampling than um, Supreme because Supreme was a computer genius um, Marga was more like a groove guy so like perfect example I remember going to Supreme's house and he had like a a brown metal case with a telephone and a telephone like receptacle and like computer keys and uh, this weird green and black screen and then um i was like so what's that thing and he goes oh no it's a console for the internet and I was like, oh what's the internet wow. and he's like oh no you know like you can talk over great distances like that's rubbish yeah, talking about i'll never catch up that's foolish and he goes no it's the future and then he was like in the future you'll be buying records on this thing and we were just like eight guys in a room on the floor. You're getting a high on your own supply, mate. It's never going to happen. He was more on the computer side. So he knew how to sequence things better. And Margo was more on the groove. So Margo would basically like line up a record and get like a tape cassette and do like a pause sample of a song. And then he would take it and he would chop it up really nice and whatever, you know. So like Margo could spot the bits. Yeah. So when... It was our turn to do our thing. Margo was like, oh, could you come down? You know, we'll sort you out. Da, da, da. And so he came down and he mixed, like, you know, the tunes that he thought was going to have the the edge. I can't remember what the tunes were now, but... Well, it brings us to your, your debut album, which has a tremendous title, doesn't it? Die of a Black Man Living in the Land of the Lost. Yeah. Yes. It's not bad, is it? No, that's no, not bad. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was controversy over the lead single, or is that internet talk that has been overplayed? No, no, no. There was literal controversy. The people um, at Radio 1 didn't want to play it because it contained um, sort of racist sound bites and they thought that would um, inflame people in some way, shape or form, which is quite ironic because we got those racist sound bites from Radio BBC2, but it's cool. Because <laughs> um, they did some National Front documentaries and so yeah. I recorded them and then took the audio from them. And then I, I, bought, some, I bought some National Front tapes off a guy I worked with um, at Morden 
How was that um, as, a, as a transaction? Does anyone want to buy this? <laughs> That's the front seat. <laughs> no, no, just the front seat. Yeah, I'll have a look. I'm going to go for it. Yeah, <laughs> just like, one know, of each. Just one of each, you know. Um, they were on like a, they were quite tone, so no, Sony CHF 90. It was like the white and orange cassette. And it was just like, you know, some dude ranting about like the immigrants or whatever. It was quite cool. Um, <laughs> but had some really, really great sound bites. So like, because uh, um, the guy that I bought it from, he was like an ICF guy. And so he he had a side business in like selling sort of racist paraphernalia, but it's really good good driver. Um, <laughs> not, not all bad, yeah. not all bad, not not all bad, bad. You know, That's you know. the thing. Don't want to meet him and his mates, but yeah, nice. He and won't then, crash a train. No, but, he will not. You know, don't bring him out for dinner. Don't. He's, no, he's not no. going to be. So when you say ICF, you mean like the West Ham firm or literally West Ham firm that ICF? Like because that, that refers to a train line, doesn't it? No, no, no it probably <laughs> does. Probably does. Well, yeah, yeah uh, in the inner city, in, line, in yeah. intercity firm. Oh, okay. They used okay, to right, travel right. up and down the country on trains. Useful, isn't it? If you're a train driver. Yeah, free travel basically, or at least discounted on British Rail. But yeah, so um, yeah, I bought some tapes from him, and those some of those were used sort of as bridge and chorus parts. Is it of, Son of Shem? No, not Son of Shem. It was um, in Diary of a Black Man. I used some bits, and I used some bits in Shem. Yeah, Diary of a Black well. Man is a track itself. Yeah, has and the... I did use some bits. You're right. Yeah. yeah, in Son of Shem as well. Yeah. But it was Diary of a Black Man that was banned by the it was, BBC. It was ban- banned by the BBC, which was which really helped us actually because we like sold fifty seven thousand copies of that record because of them. Oh right, <laughs> so, well that was pretty sweet. Which is probably more you were if they just played it. Yeah, yeah. Would have, <laughs> no, we would have bought it probably if they played it. But you know, as an MC, it must have been such a treat to have like, like you've got three DJs already. Yes. Plus, uh, as you say, the um, the guy from Hijack as well. Yeah. And like, because the the quality of the beats are just like so high, aren't they? It's extraordinary. Like they must they play. Oh, do, uh, like you got any lyrics for this? Yeah. And it's just like you know, it's like funk samples and stuff in it, but just so well done. And I suppose conversely. For you as an MC, you, you've got a freedom where you're like, no matter what I bring them vocally, yeah. they're going to be able to work around it. You know, one of them is going to have something. Something, yeah. I can go just completely off track here. Yes. I can do anything I want in terms of lyrical content, in terms of style or, and speed. Yeah. And these guys are going to be able to, you know, step Deliver, up and match yeah. it. Well, what I, the problem that I had with, um, not problem, the, the problem that we had with the original Die for Black Man sample, the, the Brassy thing, was I only had one verse. And so the third verse was the only verse. And they were like, we should make like a song song out of it. And then, um, so I wrote another verse. So the second verse became the new verse. And then I wrote like a first verse to try and lead up to the other verses. And then, um, then they added all these other kind of bits and pieces, but there was, um, Cats 22. So there's like five of us in Cats 22. In the early days, it was three of us. Um, but so we had the three of us in Cats 22. Then we had, um, uh, DJ Supreme, right? Um, Comanche Sly popping in and out. You had Ulysses, who was like a manager temporarily, but he was also in the hijack. You had um, DJ Scout, I think DJ Scout or somebody like that. Um, but he was in a crew that um, run by um, Ice Pit called Zombie Headhunters. So there was like DJ, no, DJ B Boy Scout and Ice Pick, and then you had Shaka Shazam. And then he had his own crew, who was named, I can't Standard Ovation. Ovation. Yeah. And so there were like about four of them. So in total, there were probably about 15 opinions for right. every beat. Yeah, yeah. So like it had to be, and then Margo would get quite wound up. Or people like, oh, that beat's rubbish. That's like, <laughs> there was a, who was that crew at that time? They sampled, um, it was like a big guy and a, and a tiny guy. 
I think they're sampled true by Spandau Ballet or something <laughs> like that. Anyway, um, they were kind of like a happy rap kind of band. And so everything was compared to them because they were like, you know. And so like Margot would get all wound up and do like dark, deep, dark, <laughs> deep shit to like let them know. Like, and also he loved the funk, so... So is this on the first album when you've got all these voices? This is when we've got all... Yeah, that yeah. is on the first and album. And on, the, say, the second record, right. um, t- uh, Dark Tales from Two Cities, yeah. do, do people fall away or have you got more people coming? No, but, but at that point, um, um, I wanted to uh, make a better record because I thought that um, Diary of a Black Man was kind of too... It just it didn't have the bite that it didn't have the the the, the, the epic quality that I want, that I got from records that I liked and then what well, didn't go in our favor because at that time I just loved soul music that's what I listened to and I remember oh well, black American music and I remember I was into a Prince album called Three Chains of Gold and I bought it on it had like sexy motherfucker and, all, and whatever on there and um, um and I remember I bought it and it was on two vinyls. And I was like, so we had a meeting. I'm like, our next album will be two vinyls. Yeah. <laughs> we so, need a gatefold. <laughs> yeah. So we need like, and we're called Cash 22. Let's make 22 tracks. It'll be bad. Yeah, yeah. And then so that's how it started. Um, by being inspired by this, this. And then I saw like Sexy Motherfucker, the video. While we're in the production of Dark Tales, I remember watching Sexy MF on Top of the Pops. And just like, he's got like a gun mic. He's got a car. His crew looks gay in that, but you could tell that man's got girls, you know. So like, it was quite uh, um, quite an inspirational time because in hip hop, everything was very um, um, American, and everything was very much about like American values and the, the whole kind of European experience just didn't exist. So even people who were like more uh, mainstream or more had more of a budget they seem to kind of like promote this kind of Americanness, And we, like, I lived in, well, at that point, I lived in Patmore Estate. Um, on in, Nine Elms, in, yeah. On Nine Elms. And then Marga lived in Peckham. Kilimanjaro still lived in Lindor Road. Brainiac had left and gone to do house music or something. And then um, we'd got a guy called KV. He was a dancer that he became a producer with, like, Malaka B., a poet and then um, Soul Brother had come out of the shadows and he was just like listen no, we need good records now and so to the, the whole kind of production engine changed and then Stand Innovation and Ice Pick were going sort of more deeper into like what I used to call 12 inch territory so they were not interested in long players they were only interested in doing like that killer single yeah. and there was like a trend at that time a lot of crews who came out around sort of 92, 93 were just all about the killer single. Everybody wanted to have like that, that jump around single, like, you know, like the House of Pain. Um, Cause that was like a, that wasn't even an album, that was a 12 and it like blew up. And then they, I think they cobbled together some sort of album out of it. But that House of Pain was like a 12. There was quite a, quite a few big records. There was, um, might've been after Dope on Plastic. I don't know, that's by. Do you remember that song? Do you know that song? Dope I don't know. It's got like a weird, like siren type thing school. going through it. <laughs> it was a big, it was a big yeah. tune at the time. Yeah, yeah. Dope on plastic. It was a big tune, and um, but it was like one of those monster twelves. And then around that time as well, um, NWA had like some. There were just like the whole so the music industry was changing. Sorry, hip hop was changing um, across the, across the board because 
for the first time, like the West Coast thing had like more than just a gimmick stamp. It was like, it's here to stay. And so what I liked about West Coast music was it was a lot more melodic. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the New York sound, like the Hank Shockley sound or the Diamond D sound was a lot more minimal, a lot more, sorry to talking, but modal, yeah. you know, jazzy basically, but dark jazzy. Um, so like, I thought uh, we should just like make something that's like us. That's our vibe. That's a bit like us, you know. Says, well, it's an ambitious record. Like, there's, um, like, it's very long, as you say. Like, yeah. it is not just like we're gonna bang out some singles and then go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like you say, it's almost a concept album. I don't know if it's meant to be. You know, there's long instrumental patches as well. Yeah. Like, it's not really what uh, I was expecting. You know, Steve and I both were a bit ignorant about this whole kind of scene. Okay. And uh, somebody kind of introduced us to it a few months ago. We kind of been listening, researching, and stuff. But it's not the sort of thing that we even expected existed. No, you know exactly. I mean, kind that, of, uh... That's what's been so exciting about it. I sort of going, this all came out of South London in this period. Yeah. And it's uh, just remarkable stuff. Like, you know, Thank not you. just like, oh, right, this, this is interesting. This is good. This is, you know, valuable stuff that, you know, it's important that people know. I've got a question about yeah. one particular track on it. Okay. Uh, Dance to the Shadow Boxer. Okay, yeah. Which, uh, tremendous track. Okay. But it's 1993 this album comes out. I'm assuming it's was that year it was recorded. It was that year. Right. Yeah. yeah. And in 1995, on Liquid Swords, Jizza releases the track Shadow Boxing. Right. Which uses the same samples and okay. says a similar... Uh, yeah. Uh, were you aware of the Wu-Tang in, in 93? It was, it Not was, at all. They, they had really only just started. It wouldn't have even made it over to the UK at that point. Um, no. Was yeah, that's, it was very interesting yeah. that, yeah. you know from these two different places, you know, radically different places, not just different parts of the same country or the same city, sure. two different continents with an ocean between you. Yeah. You both found this sort of common ground right. to, to sample from. Well, the, the thing that's, um, the, the missing link is the weird thing about geography, there's like physical geography, but social geography is different. So the social geography of um, urban life means that, people from different parts of the world tap into the same thing. So people who sorry to get all cultural studies or whatever, but like people who are powerless are interested in things to do with power. And martial arts is very much about power. It's about an individual having this immense power to change his landscape, to change his life, to change the life of others and, and be able to, you know, to tap into something quite deep. So it's very easy for some black dudes from New York and some black dudes from London to like the same thing because martial arts runs through the black community in a particular way, if only just for that power, that power dynamic. And the fact that we live in like these huge urban areas where being able to, def to defend yourself um, is so paramount. There was a question you asked before and I didn't quite answer it, but the short version, what I think the question was and what my answer will be is, uh, Dark Tales from Two Cities was designed as a concept album. And the concept was, there were two worlds. Um, one was kind of like a, 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 a kind of funk, hardcore, terrible world. And one was kind of like a hopeful world, you know, where things could be better, but we need to sort these things out. So the, the records were assigned in that, in that fashion. And because we knew there was going to be sort of two vinyls, we like, did like weird, like we had little inscriptions on the vinyl. So mm -hmm. we went to the mastery and we're like, oh yeah, put this on the vinyl. <laughs> so if you look on the vinyl, there's like little inscriptions that we... Got the mastering that to put on it. Um, but basically, we wanted to take 
the sort of street sound that we knew and have it sort of more well-known nationally. So we wanted to have sort of, you know, records. And the last thing, so we wanted to have records that um, had more of an impact rather than be a gimmick. And then the last thing was up until um, Dark Tales from Two Cities, our basic philosophy was radio will not play our records. So we made our records for record buyers, not for, for radio. So that's why the the, the, the the lyrics are the way they are, the mixes are the way they are. So we never thought of radio at all. So you're not you're not making singles, you're, you're telling no. the story. We're just that's, telling a story. That's your emphasis. Yes. And it gives you a complete freedom at that point, doesn't it? Yes. You don't have to worry about, is it too long, is it too short? doesn't matter because no, you're not thinking about it. Because they're not going to play it. Right. Because at that time, radio was dominated by American record labels. And they had they did all the advertising, they did all the they owned all the or seemed to own all the magazines. Um, all their labels wouldn't focus on local acts, so they'd have like amazing acts, like British act, but then the act would do nothing and then like some crap from wherever comes and they're like number one, they were like, Oh, they're the best thing ever. <laughs> and this was like across the board in every genre. So you knew and then radio seemed to be set up to just play American music. Um, and there's only like pirate stations would play local music. Um, but then you didn't get any publishing returns, so you know you're not going to make any money in that area. So the, the main emphasis was make something strong for people who go to record shops. You go to record shops, they put the needle to the groove, they're like, oh, yeah, I need that. And these are the people. And then also make something strong for people who go to concerts. Did you um, play live much? Yeah, yeah. We toured for about a year and a half, which is, there was probably like a, there was such a long gap between, because we would probably work every six months on a record um, during that period. And Dark Tales took longer because the, our DJ got stabbed at a party. So that broke up the production time. So we took like a couple of days break for Christmas and then um, I went to a party. Someone was trying to fight with Shaka Shazam. They were like doing some dancing battle. Then Shaka Shazam beat the guy and the guy got all aggressive. No, don't get aggressive. Punch in the face. No, no, sorry, you punch me in the face, but it's all right, mate. Because it was, it's New Year's, we're all brothers, punch in the face. I'm like, if you do that again, it's on. I'm just saying, punch in the face. And then a big yeah, yeah. ruckus, you know. And then by the end of this ruckus, um, someone was going to stab me. And then Marga got in the way and then he stabbed Marga instead. So the record got stopped for about a month. Um, and then we're like, we're not going to the studio until Marga comes out of prison. Um, comes out of prison. <laughs> comes out of <laughs> hospital. And then like he came out of hospital like weeks earlier, like bleeding on the mixing desk, like trying to mix and stuff. But... Yeah. Blood on the turntables. Blood on <laughs> the turntables, indeed. <laughs> if you look at the, the crews that are operating at the time and the music that's being made at the time, getting to a third album is quite an achievement. We talked to AJ from Hard Noise. Yes. And it's two two records, isn't it? Two singles, yeah. Two singles. Didn't and even, even Hijack, it was just one, one album, really, isn't it? And well, it's it's some... Theoretically, it's two albums. Oh, is it? Because they made one album, but then it got bootlegged. And so they kind of remixed it and made new songs. So there's a there's an earlier version of that album that's like floating around. Right. Um, I don't know where it is now, but yeah. But um, I think the difference between like Hard Noise and even Hijack. See, uh, at that time I was like 24, so I was way older than them. They were like 19, 20. So I was like way older than them, and then I already had like a semi-career in like sound system, you know, making dub yeah, plates right. and all that nonsense. So then... And you so you onto your second record deal in a way, wouldn't you? I mean, you offered some in. Yes. You know, these, all these experiences wisen you up, I suppose. Yes. You, and, then, and, then, and then also, 
I was, I am still an avid record collector. So I knew that I don't get great experiences from 12s. 12s are for DJs. I'm not a DJ. Yeah, I'm yeah. just a, a music lover. So I wanted to make, re I wanted to make albums. I didn't want to make 12s. Um, cause I figured why make what everyone else is making, make something that, you know, you can have a better experience and being Jamaican, I was thinking, yeah, you know, I can make more money. You know. And longevity as well. I, I didn't think about that at the time, I'll be honest. I just thought, yeah, make more money. <laughs> you know. Another thing as well um, is I liked, I liked music. So I had like pop 12s, pop albums. I had like soul music. I had, um, yeah, rocks, a few rock rock albums. At the time, I think I'm, I liked it. I liked at the time. That were old at that time, but like when I was a kid, I couldn't buy records because I couldn't afford it. So when I obviously lived in London and I'm earning a little bit, buy all that Doobie Brothers records, um, Steely Dan. Um, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> old people music, but it was just like you yeah, know. and that's not necessarily typical, is it? Of um, of rappers, say you get you get the impression with. Um, a lot of rappers, even some big rappers, that they're not necessarily music lovers. Right. And the people are making music as like sort of a bit of a cliche maybe, but sometimes it's like part of the hustle. Yes. Or, you know, to get as a means to an end, yeah. rather than just wanting to make music for the joy and just the kind of achievement of making music. Yeah. And I suppose that's what sets you apart. And if, if the uh, DJs in the band, in the group as well, yeah. had the same idea. And the DJs had the same idea, but they're, they like their own sort of niche music. So like, um, Killam and Twice liked a bit of rock and he liked ragga. Um, and that actually, so when he was scratching, he was doing sort of like, like ragga style cuts, if, for lack of a better term. But then, because they're DJs, they're sort of competitive with each other. Yeah. So um, I remember there's a, what's the song? Um... Maybe yeah, I think it is um, Shadow Boxer, right? Um, where all three DJs come together and they're basically having like a inner band battle. Yeah, yeah. And um, for me, Killerman twice won. He does the last scratch. Right. The other two scratches, I think the middle one's Margot, the first one's Brainiac. Um, but Killerman twice wins. Um, and I remember being in the studio and he does one take, like so he does this long scratch and it's all one take. Yeah. You know, and it was just like for me, it was mind blowing. And it sounds great on the record, but if you're seeing it happen live yeah. in front of you, yeah. you're Because seeing... I'm sitting there looking at my watch going, like, <laughs> you lot need to hurry up because you're just long. Because <laughs> our brain act was, oh, I need to get more paper on my groove. And we're like, mate, really? Like, we should have been done now, you know. Have you not the seen schedule. the schedule? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got a flip chart here. Come yeah. on. We've got lunch in 10 minutes. Hurry. <laughs> so I guess because you have the DJs sort of competing against each other, it kind of raises the bar a bit yeah, more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then Brainiac was into house music. So he was like a house guy. So he liked um, Frankie Knuckles and some other weird stuff that we never heard of. So they're bringing in sounds and techniques that aren't even going to occur to a lot of like pure hip hop. Yes, music, yeah. DJs, yeah. So we didn't listen to we listened to hip yeah. hop, but we listened to music as well. Um, so when we were putting together the records, we were bringing these other kind of ideas to to the table. And like we would have like sometimes we'd have like little battle sessions with like myself and some of the other rappers in the, in the, in the collective and they would laugh at me because I just listen to soul music <laughs> like you can't when they, they'd go to my house and listen at the door because they'd be like Luther Vandross <laughs> is know? that you singing Can You Hear Me Basildon on the album you, no that's um Michael something what's his name there's some uh, the guy that guy sings on 
Daddy, no, what's his name? There's a hijack track about Daddy Rich, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. guy. It's that guy that's singing oh, on, yeah. on, um, on that song. But that's not me. I can't sing. That's insane, man. But getting that, <laughs> but getting that soul voice in, you were like, yes, that yeah. stays in. Yeah, that, that stays in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, I, I like a lot of Luther Vandross. And then I'd come and like, bury MCs with like chop off your head and all this other stuff <laughs> and they go I'm like ooh baby <laughs> it's quite a contradiction yeah so three records yes is uh are you thinking at that time like this is gonna go on forever or are you thinking like you know are you surprised to get to three albums well our deal with Cold Sweat was for three albums right? oh well, so right our, our okay. contract was basically two albums with an option to a third and um, after we did Dark Tales we were like yeah they're gonna tell us to go because, like, nobody makes a double album. And the, ironically, we, we set about... Because we were a month late with our production, Blade ends up making the first double album, double British hip-hop album. So right. that, that actually belongs to him. That accolade belongs to him. Um, he beats us by, like, a week, I think. Um, the Lion goes from strength to strength, I think, is, was the album. That's a killer album as well. Um, ours was different because it was more conceptual. But his was just like, you know, raw, full-on, proper hip-hop record. And it was self-financed and all the rest of it. But, um, but yeah. Um, but we still wanted to make that purpose gatefold, you know, with the lyrics and, you know, like the art and, you know, make a statement the about the whole and package. A, a sort of narrative yeah. conceit as well. Yeah. Um, so, and so we knew, we, and then we had a letter from Coswell saying, yeah, we want to take up our option on a third. So we thought, oh, you <laughs> we thought they were gonna like drop us and then we could like go to another label and like do bigger records because at that point i wanted to make like a live record um because we were touring so much from dark tales that we had uh, by the time we got to make the third album we had a band um when we started it was just us and the drummer and, the, and djs and then we had like brass section keys one backing vocalist for and the singer um we have KV, the producer, was also dancing. So we had a whole, like, a whole on-stage theatre experience. Um, and so I felt that we were ready for, like, you know, the big the big times. But then the, they wanted to do, like, a, um, a third album. So we were like, yeah, cool. Um, so we put together something that was we thought would be better to have. Because the last one was so big, make something that's really small. Um, so originally it was supposed to be eight tracks. I can't remember how many we did. I don't think we did eight tracks. I think we did like seven or something. And there was like some other bits um, of like live shows and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, looking at the track listing, I've not heard the third album. Right. Looking at the track listing, there are a couple of things to say live. And it does does look padded out, just looking at the track listing. Yeah, because at that point, I just wanted to be just done with Cold Sweat. Um, They were like a great place to start. But when you go on the road and you tour with like a, a real group, that has like you know better support, better support structure, and then Cold Sweat were diversifying so much. There was like thirty bands on the label at one point, and and the way I looked at it was um, there was no way that they'll be able to pay out pay us our money, right. you know. And if they can't pay us our money, then we're just we're, yeah. we're what are they doing for you? What are they doing? Other so, than printing up records. So I know, just wanted to be out of records. it. Um, and I, obviously, I, at the time, I couldn't see the bigger picture. The bigger picture was the reasons why the records, the two previous albums, was so successful was because Cold Sweat was partnered with Greyhound Records, and they were like the UK's biggest distributor of, of music at that time. Um, and so that's why the records were not 
So we had done something technically, but there was like a whole logistical side that they were taking care of. So I hadn't thought through that much at that time. Um, but I felt our personalities were developed. We were recognizable. We did X amount of shows. Manic Street Preachers, you know, said they liked our record. Um, In the Enemy, wow. I had like hate mail. So I'm like, I'm a proper like rap guy now. You know, like, <laughs> I had like nine sacks of mail for something I said in the enemy once. Um, like people calling, calling up cold switch saying going to kill me and kill my family. What and you stuff. Said? I said that black people couldn't be racist because we didn't have the social power to affect to another impress. person. Yeah. Another person. So it was, we could critical be Critical race theory, isn't it? Hmm? It's critical <sighs> race theory, yeah. you know. Yeah. 20 years on, it's, uh, why yeah, it's pretty uh, standard. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, um, it was 1990s and people didn't Also, like it was the enemy. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. The odds of uh, there being many uh, rational critical race theory reading the enemy is unlikely. Yeah, so nine sacks of, nine sacks of you know, the old post office bag. Yeah. yeah. No, the people hate mail, Steve. Yeah, I'll be reading that until today. Yeah, hate mail. This is great because the thing is, it's like when you're like depends what you're getting hate mail for. If you're getting it for you know uh, back in your corner, then yeah. bring it on. Give, give me exactly. twelve sacks of hate mail. Yeah. If, if, I, if you say something terrible and people are going, that's terrible, and I hate you because like, you go, yeah, it was bad. Yeah, I, I don't read the mail. I know I've, I've said something wrong. Because <laughs> what, what 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 really what really got me excited at the time was the fact that someone put pen to paper or use a typewriter because we didn't have computers and where we do now. So, like, people wrote letters, like, physically put the pen on the paper They're and wrote postage. something. And then they went to the post yeah. office mm-hmm. with the letter. And there were, like, different kinds of letters, like brown letter letters, white envelope letters. Um, they'll air mails. There was this type of letter. Air mail. hate mail from abroad. From yeah. abroad. <laughs> where, like... Where this they, is the thing today with the internet. It's so easy. You go to any comment section yeah. and there's a lunatic of course. threatening to kill someone. Yeah. About anything. Yeah. Whereas, as you say... But then, then only Supreme had the internet. Yeah, <laughs> only Supreme. And got set in a rabbit's foot. Um, and you don't want hate mail. This plastic triangle. I don't know what that meant. Lost someone to take off their fridge, you fucking bastard. Have that. <laughs> you know. Um, and then, like, our manager got scared and he was like, yeah, you should apologise. And I, I did, like, a fit, like, fuck them. I'm apologising. Mm. Shit, mate. And then I wrote... Well, you're listening saying, to Chuck D., you know, the thing to not is do is not to apologise, is it? Actually, at the time, I thought Chuck D was a wanker. Oh, really? I did at the time. I mean, now I know that he's like, you know, he's like the Nelson Mandela of hip-hop. But at the time, I just thought, coming over here, telling us how to run things, fuck off! Oh, really? If I see him backstage, I'm knocking around, mate! <laughs> <laughs> hey, Chuck, come here! That's, you know, that was my attitude. And actually, we got booked to do um, four Public Enemy gigs. Um, so we had to do... Fridge, um, the drum, and two other places in Britain, and um, I know it's from Liverpool and something. So that was that was after on the uh, Dark Tales, and then I got Chicken Box. Oh, come on, man! Just and I remember like, and I used to live in Stockholm, I used to live in Stockholm Park Estate, and I'm nowhere of a lie. I remember laying in my bed, and I could hear like, um, what's that record? Um, Fight the power. Oh, I was thinking that. Just like, fight the, the power. Right thing, coming just... out the back of the <laughs> fridge. across the oh. Park Estate. And I'm laying in my bed in my darkened room because I'm getting a bit of a diva. Um, <laughs> Don't look at me, I'm ugly. <laughs> With my, like, whatever that white thing they support on the, the chicken pot spots. Yeah, yeah. Like know. a... Uh... Some kind of ointment, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was laying in my room with the, you know, with the curtains drawn, the windows wide open in the summertime. 
Well, yeah. you didn't even like Public Enemy, so no. I didn't, no, I didn't <laughs> like them, but I liked the audience. I liked the audience. And, um, like, the first gig I ever did as a, as a rapper was... Um, I did a song, I'm time would kind of jump, it's like a Tarantino. <laughs> yes, in 1978. Um, mm. But um, was um, at Ice T's, it was Ice T. He had a tour called The Power Tour for his Power album. And um, we'd made, I'd made a tour with Shaka Shazam, Ice Pick, um, called The Three Nights. Of course, a very well preserved sequel called three, three Nights. Yeah. And we were called The Three Nights. And then, um, Hijack was the support, and then Hijack asked us. Oh, this is the show that Herc went to, is it? Was it yeah. at Brixton Academy? Brixton Academy. Yeah yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Our friend Herc, who turned us on to um, on to all this music, <laughs> he, he, like he um, he had Diary of a Black Man, Land of Lost, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like we came and brought all his records when we interviewed him for the show, and he pulled that out. And he said he went to the show, and he said there were people were going wild. Like there was more noise for Hijack than for Ice T. Yeah, because Hijack, they were basically. Um, I think to this day, they're probably one of the better live hip hop groups because they they'd mixed um, performance theatre with mm. music. Yeah, he said that um, there was like, well, as you know, you were there, but like Dry Ice and like Comanche Sly came on and like yeah, carrying the body in it. Carrying the body, the body gets put on the put floor. The floor and yeah, like... and then suddenly the the, 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 ice, the dry ice clears yeah. and the body's up. Yeah, and it's like the show's on sort of thing. And they did things like they would come in on like ropes. They'd like. <laughs> Abseil down the side of the venue, and mm. it was they had it down, man. You know, had all the well timed like gunshots and all this. Oh, it was brilliant, man! And like explosive t shirts, and wow. they had it down, man. But so they asked us to do this to do a slot. Um, and so we were the first band at this Ice T gig. And I remember I'm the first rapper on the Three Nights record, so we're backstage and goes, Yeah, you're on. And up to this point, I've done like this reggae club, that reggae club, this reggae dance about like two sound systems, yeah, whatever, whatever. But now I'm in this new arena. So I've not rapped in front of anyone who wasn't basically a mate or in my crew. And Brixton Academy. And Brixton a... Academy is where, you yeah. know, I, 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 I lose my virginity as a rapper. And I walk out and there was this sea of faces. And I remember I'm sort of rapping and I'm having this kind of out of body experience. And then something in my head says, put your foot on the monitor. And I put my foot on yeah. the monitor, <laughs> and then crowd, like, and then turned the back, and I was like, "Yeah, that was good. That was good." <laughs> <laughs> and then that was it. And, it. and then I just kind of stayed there, you know, because I'm like, "Take your foot off the monitor." I don't know how. <laughs> Wait till he's finished rapping. <laughs> and yeah, that was quite sweet. And then the next day, we played at um, Hammersmith. That was a great week, man. We did Brixton Academy, and then we did a Bangra gig at um, Hammersmith Palais. Right. Um, and we got paid like seven thousand pounds, and we were like, you know, my rent was twenty pounds. Yeah, right. So yeah, like, yeah. And there was like eight of us, so we're like, yeah. we had like all this money, and we're all confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Backstage, we're like, yeah, 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 safe, safe, safe. And the guy leaves, and then we're like, you take a twenty pound. That's the rent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose right. this is the rest now, isn't it? Um, okay, what do we do now? But anyway, we bought equipment and stuff. Yeah. And, so that's, in your craft and that's what we did and that's the other thing I think where we were different to a lot of the other crews because um, me and Michael would always buy equipment we always bought um, try to get like the next sampler the next keyboard or something you know um, turntables mixers speakers a microphone so I had my I had my own uh, microphone for, for years you know I wouldn't use 
the microphone of like I'd stab you in your eye if you like do a one two mm. check on my mic because my mic don't touch it. Um, <laughs> I don't need to check it. I know it works exactly. <laughs> blue. What was it again? Damn. Uh, it was a blue Neumann. It was a Neumann something something something, but it's quite rare. It's like about three thousand pounds. Um, but that was my performance mic, and it was I liked it because it was blue and it had a great sound. So when we did demos, it would sound great. Right. Um, yeah. And then when we went live, it sounded better than the SM58. So what are your uh, current projects? What are you working on right now? I'm working on um, a huge project called Urban Roots, and um, it's basically uh, just looking at um, the connection between like modern electronic music and traditional music, but translated through acoustic music. Um, so it's almost like sampling electronic music, but playing it acoustically with oh, a view to it being sort of oaky. Right. <sighs> you have to hear it. Ambitious still. But yeah, so... Um, and then um, around the end of the metal thing, I kind of got into like spoken words, and then so I was doing spoken word and sort of rapping... And then, spoken herbs. Spoken herbs, yeah. And then I got into um, work with, I got to work with a composer guy uh, on, I was shooting a film. So I shot the film and I asked this composer, oh, could you do a score for it? And then we kind of got talking and then he was like, oh, I'm doing this project with R RPO, and, but it's a tour. I'm like, oh, I'll tour with you if you want to rapper and he goes yo but we need, really need a poet I'm like I need poetry yeah, did I say rapper I'm a <laughs> yeah, poet I'm a rap poet <laughs> and then um, so I, we, I said that's how I got the Royal Philharmonic gig and so we did that for a year and then by the end of that we'd kind of gotten together my first album um, but then it was too classical and it was too hip hop it was just like beats and strings really and I well, wasn't, wasn't feeling it didn't it. gel really it didn't gel for me because yeah, it right, was right. like um, what I learned was basically strings are great by themselves, but if you put beats with them, they sound like keyboards. So I thought that's not a good record. So we kind of remixed it a bit and I moved some lyrics around and then the remixes became the songs. Um, and so that became my first album, Vitalistics in 2002. And then I'd recorded it all myself and then mixed it and whatever, and then took it to Sun Records and then they put it out. Um, but um, when I went to do a second record, they they weren't too happy to do a second record, so I figured I'll just do it myself. And then I discovered something really bizarre, that if you sell a CD for £10, you get £10. It's <laughs> the weirdest thing, because in all the time that I've been doing music, I'd never um, made great sums of money. There's always a reason why, oh, yeah. So you earn from, like, gigs, but you don't earn from record yeah, sales. Sure, yeah. So I was still working as a performer. Especially, I mean, as much as everything else, if you're dividing it up between five to yeah, 15, 15 people, people. Yeah. yeah but the record you know. company always have a reason why you're not getting the full whack as well administrative like, reasons yeah, of course yeah. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. that time the studio and the producer yeah. I mean you know, you know we're, we're, the producers in the band though weren't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah but yeah. you know yeah. the pressing plant you know yeah. um, not, not you know it's business so, yeah you know. of course yeah. so um, and of course at this time when you are thinking about you know self production mm -hmm. You've got the internet. You've yes. got it's you on, know, it's, the internet it's... is on computers now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's on computers now. The world yeah. is finally caught up. Yeah. Supreme, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and actually, what happened was after Vitalistics, my first time Vitalistics. After I did that project, um, I wanted to do like a, um, uh, like a kind of roots meets reggae kind of album. So got to go to some musicians, made like a, a fifteen track album, 
uh, mixed it, didn't sound too good. So we went back in to try and re-record a couple of bits. And um, during the whole process, then get, I got a letter from the studio saying, oh, by the way, you owe us um, £8,000. Um, and we're closing in, in 30 days. So give us £8,000 or we're going to destroy your tapes. So I was like, okay, um, choices. Go gangster, get your tapes anyway. Mm, yeah. What are they going to do? Hunt, kill, bury. Hunt, kill, bury. <laughs> what, I'm, from, I'm from Jamaica in a bitch. Or pay them the bill because you caused the bill. They didn't run up the bill. You did. So, now I mean, what's, what's the deal? Surely the original agreement had more than 30 days for you to pay. It had more than 30 days. The had more than 30 so they, days. they've changed the terms there. Like, yeah, but um, radically. I had a word with Margo. Margo's like, nah, let's just take the tapes. <laughs> and I was like, nah, let's not do that. Um, so um, I, the original mix of the record um, was quite decent. So I, spoke to, I got it mastered. And that month, I was only going to earn like £800. Um, I was like, what will I do? What should I do? So I used the 800 pounds to make a thousand CDRs and then I pressed up a thousand, I said press up, I got a thousand booklets made, yeah. but like in a book binder. So they were really elegant and then put the CDRs in the booklets with little spindle spider thingy me cheeks, you know, the CD spider glue. Yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And then, so that became like the first draft of a album called Acoustic Africa Hip Hop. And then... I sort of went around the spoken word clubs and called my friends and cried to people. And then like some people like five CDs and bought 10 CDs. But basically I sold 800 CDs and then went to the studio on the last day with 8,000 pounds in a bag. That old loose change and the woman's sitting there. And I'm like sitting on the, sitting on the chair and she's counting out the money and thinking that's the most money I've ever seen from the music business. In the sense that there was no one to share it with. Yeah. It was just, it's all your money. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. So if I could be like as passionate about anything, then I could actually get a bit of money to make more records and make the kind of records that I really want to hear. So that was... Well, it's, it's quite interesting that essentially there, the traditional music business forced you to find a, a model that was no longer the traditional music yeah, business. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it was like... I'm going now and I won't be back and it's yeah. your fault. Yeah, it's, you, exactly. You, you've made me find this way to make music entirely on my own. See you yeah. later. And, yeah. you know, that's the, the key, isn't it? Now? Yeah. And so I, I've, not weird, but in my sense, but I'm sure for the typical kind of Cats 22 fan or the typical kind of Hunt Kilberry Finn fan, one, I've changed my name from Hunt Kilberry Finn to HKB Finn. What's that about? And then secondly, mm. I'm making these weird records that don't have, they have the beats, but they're not turned up right. Or they have the the, the, the the hook, but the hook is all in the front. And then there's someone singing and there's all these weird instruments. Like what are they do? What are they about? I remember giving the, there was a review of Acoustic Afro Hip Hop on hip hop, ukhiphop.com. And they were like, yeah, this record's really nice, but it goes on for a bit. Cause it's like, it's a nine minute record of like <laughs> six minute solos, which were great in the studio, which I thought people would get, but anyway. Um, uh, so the bottom line is, um, I found like a new audience. So, um, Tunde, uh, the producer I work with, called them the fascination crew. And he, the fascination crew are people who are part hip hop, part jazz, part this, they're just part of everything. And they're like the weirdos from all the scenes, but they just like stuff that's just weird. Yeah. So. They're not put off by the blends. They're yeah. excited by the blends. By the blends. They're happy to embrace yeah. it. Oh, oh, yeah, that, that, that's, um, yeah, that's like my mood from, um, <laughs> you know, blah, blah. 
And similarly, the music business now, you know, performance has become so key to, you know, being successful and finding yes. an audience. Yes. You know, that's, that's the model now, isn't yes. it? And what, for me, what was great was with Cats 22, we, I learned how to songwrite, most, most importantly. And so with my own stuff, I sort of incorporate a lot of those like production and, and writing techniques in, in the newer stuff. Um, but the best bit is I'm able to use like hip hop technology in the creation of the music, but it just doesn't come out in a traditional way, um, traditional hip hop way. So, and then I found myself, and so basically the, the, what I thought were traditional hip hop fans, I kind of, I felt I lost them because I didn't make the music they wanted. And then you had like new people like Ty and Roots Maneuver, um, and Skepta and Wiley and all these other cats who totally make that authentic urban music edgy and you know talks about all the real issues and all the other stuff and then I just I make songs about like a girl in a hotel crying or something you know it's just because I'm into stories I'm into that kind of stuff but it then led me to work like in jazz I found myself um I didn't mention this okay so like I remember there's in 2010, I'm doing a show, as you do. And then, like, I have this kind of out-of-body experience, like, dude, you're rapping in Madagascar. <laughs> That's <laughs> mad. You know, it's like... it's, it's like did, you, did you have your foot on the monitor? <laughs> no, I didn't. I should have, I should have. But it was just so... It's such, like, a culture shock. Because at first, you just want to get a gig. Right. And then if I could get 10 gigs, then I'd be fine. Then you get like 30 gigs. And you're like, okay, so I get 30 gigs and maybe make some money. That'd be great. Mm. Cause I could make another record. And then, um, then you get like 60 gigs. And then, so you're like, you're doing 60 gigs and that gigs, gig 47 just says you leave England, you land at Antanarivo and then you leave two weeks later and you've got like six gigs, but you don't, you don't really, I'm not really thinking about what I'm actually doing. I just think oh, I have to be there. Oh, I don't know that audience. Okay. We'll start something light and we'll do this and blah, blah, blah. And then like, oh, I can't bring this musician. I've got to find another musician. And so I'm like involved in a different industry now, it feels. Mm. So I'm like this unknown ambassador from Britain. Because everywhere I go, I see my face. I see the British flag. see my name in some language. And I'm doing this music. And they're like, yay, British music, good. And I come back, I'm in like Sainsbury's, just <laughs> anonymous. Like I was just saying to her, like um, I did a show in... There's a town called Vienne in France, um, and they have a Roman amphitheater. Been there since like the Romans, and it holds about ten thousand people. And I went to do a support slot for a singer called Rochelle Farrell. Oh. Probably never heard of her. She's really famous in the jazz and soul world. And so I was doing the support for Rochelle Farrell, and she's like, like almost the number one singer in, in the whole world. You know, is the number one singer. In the world. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, is. so like. <laughs> Like, I walk out on stage and we're doing the songs that I've written in, like, Peckham. And we're doing the songs and people are really into it and they're screaming and they're loving it. And I come on stage and people are like, like, I'm sold out of all my CDs. You know, I went with, like, 60 CDs and I have none. I'm like, shit, I should have bought 100. <laughs> but anyway, um, set up my CDs. I'm walking back to my hotel. People are like, oh, give me your autograph and all this kind of business. I'm an old dude. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> Um, and then like 24 hours later, I'm in Sainsbury's just pushing my trolley. Like people screaming at me yesterday and <laughs> I'm in Sainsbury's now, you know, someone's giving me the eye, like, is he stealing something? You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, yeah, it's a strange life for a, for a musician, I suppose. Yeah. And then when you've been, and you've been in the business for 
like I said, the business. Like, since the 80s. I'd say that back. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Since yeah, for like 25 years. Yeah, since the 80s. So that's what, So when I was in Madagascar, I mean, it hadn't dawned on me I'm in Madagascar because it's such a unique place. It's this huge island, six times the size of Britain, with this like amazing like wildlife and this incredible history and everything. And the, 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 the social makeup of like the main city, Antanarivo, was kind of like Africans lived there and then like um, people came from Asia and then they kind of mixed with Africans and then people came from the Far East and they mixed with the, the other Asians and the Africans. And so like a couple hundred years later, you've got like, like a mixed race island, for lack of a better term. People who like kind of black, Chinese, Indian looking with like really like amazing skin and really quite small and, you know, and their music is quite interesting because it's a mixture of those three main cultures as well. And then here I am, this weirdo from UK <laughs> in their jazz festival, like rocking out. And I'm like, dude, there's like 10,000 tiny people jumping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're quite small. Um, <laughs> So it was quite a, like a weird experience mm. to to know that um, that you know art reaches its audience, whether you know, long as you you're true to it, it always finds its audience. I guess so. That's what really cool. And then, so like um, since 1999, going solo, I've performed in 38 countries as HKB films, 44 with other bands, but as myself, 38 countries. Wow, that's that's not bad. Yeah, it? that's impressive, man. Yeah. You know, with this kind of brick core scene, which you know we were kind of dubious about the term, but then you used it in that, in, in that this track in '94, do you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it came. As I said, uh, what was the track then? Is it don't uh, don't impress me? Is that don't impress called? me. Yeah. Um, and I thought, oh right, so it isn't just something that's been tagged on later. But saying that '94 is probably the tail end of it, anyway. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. But um, of everyone from that scene, I mean, very few people could claim over a decade they played in that many countries and you know do you know what I mean a kid still even still making records yeah and that was in Catch 22 finished but it just it seems like freed you to you know investigate and examine music in a broader way and it's obviously pretty great success well, for me the the the, uh, the irony is I still make hip hop in my head I just make it my way um, so I don't have a drum machine I don't turn the bass drum up so loud or the snare so loud I don't um, take a melody from somewhere. I think of the melody. Um, I think of the harmony to go with the melody. I think of the bass line and all the other bits. So in a way, I'm still sampling, but I'm just using my head. It's like it's a weird, like um, there's a song on, the, I'll give you a CD, but there's a song on the new album called, mini album called Village Girl. And it started just as a bass line. So I'm, I'm walking down the street. Oh, that'd be cool and I'm like thinking of like what beat could go with that would be so crazy if that was a bass line and it, that's, and it starts like that and then doing some like crude chords and then thinking oh that's really nice but it's a bit yeah needs a bit more and you know playing something and so like I'm trying to push my own creativity as far as, as as I can take it knowing that I've not been to like Purcell or Guildhall to learn like melody harmony or any of those things um, I, like I've heard the term harmony of the spheres and like when you say that to real musicians they go ooh you know because <laughs> it's like the it's like the Shangri-La of music you know yeah, yeah. where you can make this music that harmonically um, synchronises with the harmony of the universe itself bold ambitions <laughs> apparently I don't know but that's, it's a thing you know 
they reckon. Um, so I don't know about all that stuff. You know, I don't know an A from a G. I just know that sounds good. That doesn't sound good. That's it. It's uh, Gladwell, isn't it? Malcolm Gladwell. You've done your 10,000 hours. Plus. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So people can buy all your solo records on hkbfin.com. Yes, they can. So, yes. so concer- uh, concerned about getting the letters run the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> your YouTube channel is? YouTube.com forward slash alternative studios. And there's plenty of stuff on there. There's a couple of things. Mini documentaries about uh, Bengal sitar players, for yes. example. <laughs> yeah. And um, what else is on there? I met some graph guy, cool graph guy, like awesome. Oh, I've got that for you. I just started having a look, there's like 60 videos, but there's some great <laughs> stuff, like there's music and uh, film stuff. Yeah, dig in. But we'll be linking on the website and across our Twitter feed on cool. the week as well. So I'm also on the dreaded like iTunes. As well, um, so if you're not, if you're one of those Appleites, then yeah, you know, catch me. But I imagine you get a bigger chunk if they go straight to your website. Yeah, they get a bigger chunk. We'll but go I'm, there I'm, then, not, I'm not averse to sharing. There's a saying in Germany, "Jeder muss, jeder muss essen," which bad. I just said quite badly, but it means everybody must eat. Right, even Steve Jobs. Well, no, not <laughs> Steve Jobs. Oh, he yeah. died in it. Not yeah. Steve Jobs. But is even he dead? <laughs> but is he dead? Even the executives at Apple, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shadow Bob.